welcome to Barents and Bond Podcast, episode 67, with your hosts, Corey and Diego Barentson. Hello, Diego. Hello. Happy Saturday. Today we have a fantastic guest, my good friend, amazing mountaineering and trekking guide. Traverse the whole world. I want the whole scoop. I've got a list of questions. I hope you're ready. And you're sitting here with you. Don't mind introducing yourself, your professional position, and who who is Mr. Glenn Young? Hello. Quite the awesome introduction. And um, yeah, so my name is Glenn, Glenn Young. I'm currently based in the Pacific Northwest. I live just to the east of Seattle. And I've been working as a professional mountain guide since 2005. Um, I started off working up in Alaska. And then since that time, I've had the opportunity to work um, uh, a lot of different countries and different places in the world. And kind of overlapping with that for the first maybe 10 years working as a professional mountain guide, I also um, studied and taught uh, martial arts, primarily Muay Thai, kickboxing, and other arts from Southeast Asia. Yeah, so kind of a, a, a very unusual set of professions. <laughs> well, I, I love to start at the beginning. Uh, I know you're from upper Midwest Detroit area, but where, so we know that's where you grew up, correct? And then how did you grow up? I'm trying to lead to how did you become mm. a Muay Thai instructor and a mountain mountaineering guide? Where does this <laughs> path begin? Because I'm, oh, sure yeah. a, I'm sure you were a 10-year-old boy in fifth grade. And was there anything <laughs> that young that kind of triggered those ambitions? Oh, that's a really interesting question. Yeah, I grew up in southwestern Michigan uh, in a city called Kalamazoo, a city that Dr. Seuss, uh, it sounds like he named. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think uh, I had, um, I don't think I had a really unusual upbringing in a lot of ways. So my father worked for a pharmaceutical company. Uh, my dad, or sorry, my, um, my mom, um, she ran like a daycare when I was younger and uh, preschool later. Um, and then my parents separated in my teens, um, which is you know, pretty normal these days. And uh, yeah, I grew up and I would say like a solid middle class Midwestern existence. Um, but, you know, after moving out west, I realized maybe we're out west. We certainly wouldn't have been in the middle class. We would have been maybe lower middle class, something like that. But, uh, I, you know, I, it's really hard to pin down exactly what attracted me to these things. I think it had to do with just being like a small energetic child. And then I think in terms of getting into martial arts, I think there's a couple things that attracted me. Like first, I think um, I always loved to explore, you know, I'd go on big bike rides or just walks through neighborhoods far, far away, or at least what seemed far when I was a kid. And so I was always dreaming of kind of escape, <laughs> I guess you could say. And, uh, I didn't grow up in the most beautiful area. Um, it was just, you know, relatively flat, lots of factories. Um, and, uh, yeah, the, the industrial Midwest isn't known for being, you know, really, really awesome if you like, um, beauty, but, uh, 
So, but, but I loved exploring. So I think that attracted me to getting out in a way. And, um, and then I think, you know, as I got a little older and I developed certain ideas about what it meant to be a man <laughs> and masculinity, and then, uh, certainly maybe to some degree, the environment that I grew up in, um, there was definitely a little bit of violence in the area. And, uh, so I think I had a desire to mm, develop a sense of masculinity around being able to fight. <laughs> um, and I also liked the idea of martial arts because they're at least, you know, from an outsider's point of view, looking in, it seemed to have sort of a code of ethics around when it was appropriate and when it wasn't. And it had a lot of, uh, yeah, there was a lot of respect that you could get potentially if you practice the right type of martial arts. And then that, could result in some type of psychological protection, if not physical protection. And so like my younger brother used to get picked on a lot in school and things like that. And, um, after I took up martial arts, um, I, I wouldn't say I got into fights, but I was able to defend myself a little bit here and there and stick up for my younger brother and, uh, bullying in school got better. And, uh, um, yeah, and then I was able to earn a little bit of respect. Um, there's a lot of gang activity and things like that in my school too, and uh, the gangs kind of left me alone a little bit. So you gained all that. Good. So all the strength, the mental strength, and the self confidence you gained from martial arts kind of kept those anger or that aggression at bay, right? Because you know, I noticed that mm. you know, when we met, we had that connection. You know, I was barely starting on my jujitsu mission and you had already been instructing and um, looking back at it now, I don't, you know, I was so excited to just kind of tussle and wrestle around with you and could feel that you knew much more than me as soon as we got into it. And that was a thing where as I began to learn it and maybe for you too, I get this real kind of egotistical arrogance about, Oh, well I know some things and I'm, I will unleash the fury on the world, like back <laughs> off. And then mm -hmm. when it really comes down to it, your level of skill and tolerance and confidence really gets confronted. Mm. And uh, I took that lesson from you that day, you know, like, oh, I should really be a little bit more humble and, and know that I don't know as much as I think I do. But at, but at that age, Diego Hecke was saying in school, he didn't need to fight everybody. But because he knew how to protect himself, he wasn't worried if it happened. And a, when a, a bully senses that, you know, they're going to pick on somebody that's probably not going to fight back. And if they do, they think they can win. But if you, your confidence just comes out and that can in itself defend you in a way. And like, like you said, psychologically, he was mentally prepared. Like, oh, if it happens, I'm ready. And, you know, if I'm speaking wrong, Glenn, just cut me off. <laughs> but that's something you know I, I train Diego a little here and there a lot more than he realizes because right now I still try to make it fun like we're mm -hmm. wrestling and playing but even when we wrestle and play it's it's always based on some very basic techniques some, mm -hmm. and just kind of in the way we wrestle and play I'm, I'm giving him those small movements of like the, the small circle and large circle jiu-jitsu close quarter stuff and so he, you don't even know, you don't even know, Diego. You've been training since you're a baby. You've just been <laughs> wrestling around. 
but <laughs> sorry for that tangent. Um, so after after you start sticking up for your brother, then then what happened as far as you got older? Yeah, that's an interesting thing, you know. Um, so some of the folks that w- I guess you'd say were problematic at our school in terms of the way that they treated other people, I actually became pretty good friends with one of them um, because I, I think something happened inside of me when I was no longer intimidated or afraid of you know, people in that position where I could see where they were coming from. And uh, one guy, he... He'd had a he'd had a pretty rough accident. He'd been in a car accident, and his uh, brother's best friend died in that car accident. And his brother was actually paralyzed, and um, he had been on substances when he was driving. And uh, you know his life was he was just totally wrecked. And um, you know he was treating other people poorly because of his life situation back at home. And all of a sudden, I had like an overwhelming sense of compassion him and um you know i remember on his birthday he he really liked practice he was a boxer and so i bought him a pair of boxing gloves that they weren't cheap especially for a kid to buy you know <laughs> and uh but you know I, he actually he broke down and cried in front of i don't know how many people like on the bus and um because he was so moved you know his parents had thrown him out of, out of the house and everything else so i'd say if anything else like not only did martial arts help me have a little bit more confidence, but that confidence changed my perspective on, you know, uh, it allowed me to see past my fear and see people who otherwise would have seemed scary or intimidating, intimidating or dangerous. I was able to see them as human beings like me and with their own problems that were causing them to act the way they were. And that actually led me in a you know, in a lot of different directions, but one of the directions that led me, I, I worked for community mental health shortly after that, um, through my teens. And I worked with, you know, mostly young people who'd come from difficult backgrounds and had problems. And, um, and I think it is, it, it gave me and continues to give me a greater sense of compassion and understanding for people from a lot of different walks of life who I think most people would prefer to avoid, <laughs> to be honest. But so that's one of the directions it led. And then the other direction it led is because I was practicing martial arts. Um, and, you know, most martial arts didn't originate in the United States. I ended up traveling to Southeast Asia in my late teens and early 20s and um, studying mostly Muay Thai in, um, in Thailand. And uh, over the course of some years, I ended up starting a gym with uh, a couple friends there, um, one of whom was Thai and others had, were expats who were living in Thailand for a while. So in, in downtown Bangkok, and I lived there for a while, and studied and practiced Muay Thai. So I didn't know you were that young. Like, how did you? Yeah. This is at the end of high school. Like, how did you say, mm. "Hey, mom and dad, is it a, a fact of can you fund me to go there?" Or because you were already teaching at the community, what is it called? Mm. The community center. Is that where you used to get over there? Yeah. Good question. So I was pretty fortunate in that, um, you know, I, my grandfather, when he passed away, he left a little bit of money for our education and, uh, you know, it wasn't a lot and, uh, you know, for better or for worse, I didn't really know how to manage money because I've never had any and my, my family didn't come from a lot of money. And, uh, but I, in my mind, you know, like a lot of young men, or young people in general, we have these ideas about this is what I want to be or this is what I want to do when I grow up. 
And I remember how, you know, it's pretty funny to think about, but I remember when I was like 12, 13, I was like, I want to, I, I really lo- was into reptiles and amphibians as a young person as well. And so I was like, I'm going to own like a, a pet store and a martial arts studio, <laughs> you know, and uh, it's, it's cool. I mean, it's totally, it's reasonable. You, you could do that, but it's just funny to think about how driven I was by my childhood dreams. But um, so I, my grandfather had left me around $1,200 and uh, I used that to purchase a ticket to Thailand. And at that time there was a, a site called Sky Auction where you could bid on tickets and um, during the low season, you could get tickets for pretty cheap. So I think I actually got my round trip ticket out of Los Angeles for around 320 US dollars. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Kind of outrageous these days. You, well, you might be able to get it right now. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Definitely possible these days. So you, so you uh, use your yeah. computer skills, saved a lot of that money, got over there for cheap. I got over there for really cheap. And um, I had a previous martial arts instructor who was living and working in Thailand. And so he had planned to pick me up and then um, I was going to stay with him. So I wasn't going to have much of any expenses once I arrived. And food there is really cheap. And um, I ended up, I just slept in the airport for a couple nights because he wasn't available. And uh, (laughs) the the dates for my sky auction ticket had me arrive, you know, well before he was going to be available. But I just slept in the airport and... uh, (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I looked around and found the, the cheapest food and I'd brought a bunch of snacks from home. So I, I, I guess I'd just say I made it work. Dude, that is, <laughs> I love, that is some young person ambition right there. Yeah. Fly totally. across the world, <laughs> sleep in the airport and be like, it's cool. It's going to all going to be fine. Yep. Like, yeah, exactly. It's funny to say, I, I don't know if I tell you, I ended up in Los Angeles because my grandfather left me a tiny bit of money and I had same thing. I've been working jobs and saved zero. Like I'm teaching <laughs> Diego that saving is important. It's going to be a part of his DNA, but me a hundred percent is gone. Right. I'm like, mm-hmm. I'm out of here. I'm going to leave. And I, I call my dad. I'm like, ah, do you have like, I need some money. I want to get out of here. I'm ready to start my life. And it's like, Oh, your grandfather left you. I think it was about the same, like maybe $1,700. Mm-hmm. And that's what I had. I, you know, put my clothes in my humongous computer, you know, <laughs> in my car, and that's how I got there. I, I lived uh, with a family member for a little while until I got on my feet. But that's the only way I could leave. Also, is, uh, a nice grandfather. So I hope mm. to also bestow my maybe five grandkids a little something to get going. It's crazy how little you need. Mm. to go on your life venture you started this whole mission with twelve hundred dollars yeah for sure (laughs) i had no idea how little that was (laughs) but but look and and it was enough it was enough Mm -hmm. because you didn't need much yeah you needed that's true you didn't need it for nothing really Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i mean especially as a young person who wanted adventure there's no better way to guarantee an adventure than to go to another country with very little money and very little knowledge. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess he eventually picked you up, it looks like. <laughs> oh, he, he did, yeah, exactly. And uh, Yeah, he was working in Singapore at the time. Um, and uh, he was teaching martial arts to, to the military down there, actually. And then uh, came up and picked me up. And, um, yep, I ended up 
training and practicing Muay Thai in Thailand for a while on that trip. And, uh, and then in college, I was able to get work and I worked partway through school and I also worked for the university and, uh, and I was able to go back. Uh, sorry, I went to university in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Okay. And, and so uh, that first trip was, I think, right around a month or two months long. Um, and I came back and then continued to go to university. Um, and then through what I earned through work, I was able to go back to Thailand a couple more times. Um, and then I started leading trips to Thailand, actually. So, so those were the, so while you were back in Michigan, were you, how were you training for these other, were you doing treks or climbs there? Mm. So I hadn't yet, uh, in my, in my teens, I hadn't yet started working as a, professional mountain guide. Um, I loved hiking and I loved backpacking. And so I led backpacking trips for my university. I got into a little bit of ice climbing in the upper peninsula of Michigan, which is a very cold place. And, uh, so I actually got into ice climbing before I got into rock climbing, which is kind of unusual. Um, and I was exposed to rock climbing in university and, um, it was more toward the end of my university days. Um, I ended up applying for a job in Alaska because I wanted to go to Alaska and I wanted to get more into the mountains. And I ended up working for a company called St. Elias Alpine Guides um, that's based out of McCarthy, Alaska, which is the middle of nowhere. It's like a town with a year-round population of around 40, a summertime population of 150. I like and, that uh, a city. 40 <laughs> yeah, exactly. Not only did wow. it have 40 people, but there was no running water, no electricity. So, uh, no internet. So yeah, we had pumps to pump the water that had to run on, um, fuel and, uh, no heat. So all the, all the water we had to heat up with fire, we'd, we would bathe in saunas that we heated with wood. So <laughs> pretty unique experience. Yeah. <laughs> and you were how old at that time? Uh, at that time I was, uh, 21. Yep. When I first went up to Alaska. Wow. You did a lot. I'm thinking you're deeper in the twenties by now. <laughs> yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I'm pretty, it was pretty fortunate. You know, I, I didn't, you know, I didn't really know, um, that much about the mountains and things like that. Um, I'd hardly seen them, but I knew I wanted to go and spend time in the mountains. And so this company, uh, they had a variety of different type of work. Some was like high end mountain guiding and then some was like low end, like day hikes. And so I came in as kind of an entry, level at an entry level position and just did day hikes on a glacier and uh did sort of um historic tours of an ancient mill building there from the early 1900s oh, that's yeah. cool yeah yeah it's cool good so, job <laughs> you spend a whole winter there or is it months at a time you... mm -hmm. i was still in university at that time so i just did that through the summer months gotcha um i had a few other jobs in the outdoor industry as well i worked at like an adventure summer camp in the southeast called wilderness adventure at eagle landing out of newcastle virginia um but that was it was still like one of my early jobs in the summertime yeah so we we watched it just to expose ourselves to a little bit of seeing what you know people like you have done or climbers so we watched you watch a rock uh half dome climbing movie oh cool <laughs> and then we watched some crevasse rescue instructional things on youtube Nice. And we we were well. I'll let you describe it, Diego. What did you think of the the ice climbing videos we saw? Um, it was 
pretty cool <laughs> how they go all the way down that or how it's made. Yeah. Yeah. We saw the, I mean, he only climbed down about 10 feet, but he had about 20 knots he was explaining all around him. Yeah. <laughs> about 15 totally. carabiners. He's like, I'm going to put this slip knot. This is a backup knot. This is a safety knot. This is a loop through knot. This is a foot knot. This is a uh, anchoring point. This, I'm like, Flynn knows all this. This is awesome. I don't know what I lost him 10 knots ago, but I know you know, would know what he's talking about. And I love when he's, you know, his 10th knot in. He's like, oh, this clip's really important. He rechecked the one of the carabiners. He's like, this one's probably most crucial. Check that. I'm like, don't they? What? But he showed, you know, uh, rappelling down 10 feet just where you had the other knot and you put the foothold so you can actually push against your own weight. As you climb up mm -hmm. like a foot at a time, little by little, I'm like, that's very slow. He's doing it, but, and then you look at mm -hmm. the scale of the huge ice wall he was going <laughs> to descend. Mm -hmm. It would take hours and hours. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. It requires a lot of, a lot of skills to be able to travel in the mountains with some degree of safety. I mean, there's always a lot of risk, right? But, um, and then you at least so right, right, sorry, right, yeah. right when you, just like so continue this this chronological mm. journey of yours. So right after university, you knew you're out of there, right? You're leaving to go to either Thailand or Alaska, you thought? Was yeah, good happen? question. Yeah. So out of university, um, I had I was really fortunate. I'd applied for um, a competitive scholarship to go to grad school, because this isn't something that I would have been able to afford to do otherwise. And I received the scholarship. I failed my first couple attempts. Um, and then my third attempt, I was able to get that scholarship, and that was to attend graduate school in New Zealand. And so I worked in Alaska um, one more summer, and then I traveled to New Zealand where I went to grad school for parks recreation and tourism management. And uh, while I was in New Zealand, I um, became involved with the New Zealand um, Alpine Club, and um, I was able to get some training through professional mountain guides there out of Mount Cook Village. They're affiliated with, called the, with what's called the International Federation of Mountain Guides Association, so the IFMGA. The New Zealand Mountain Guides Association is that affiliate. And um, so that was my first exposure, I guess you'd say, um, other than a little bit in Alaska, to um, uh, mountain guides that are certified at an international level. And that essentially means they have to have a certain set of skills um, that is internationally standardized and um they're very high level, you know, to become a fully certified mountain guide, it's comparable to getting like a PhD, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I, I would yeah. say more important than a PhD because lives are, <laughs> your life and others' lives are in your hands. That's yeah, amazing. for sure. Yeah, 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 it was, it was cool. I mean, and that was, for me, that was just my first exposure that <laughs> I didn't receive any certification or anything like that. But that's when I realized like what a high level profession it was. Um, and I realized in the United States, we tend not to have, uh, this isn't fully true, but we tend not to have a lot of respect or understanding for what mountain guides do. But in many other countries, especially Western Europe, Europe, um, that's not necessarily the case. And, uh, mountain guides can hold a position in society that's kind of similar to a doctor or a lawyer or something like that, because it's recognized the amount of training and commitment that it takes for that profession. Yeah. But, uh, but so it kind of motivated me to get more involved. Yeah. 
Yeah, but I mean, you started at the top. You're like, <laughs> you got in at the peak of of knowledge and information. So did you? Can, so I, it's is it is it just ongoing training after that, or did you revisit for new techniques or just renewal of knowledge? Yeah, good question. So at that point, um, I had worked as a guide previously. I had no certification. And all my training had been through the company or companies that I'd worked for. And um, that was at, at that point, I realized I would like to become a certified guide. And there, in the United States, there are three different certification levels. There's uh, rock guide certification, which requires the least amount of overall training. Then there's um, ski guide certification, which requires the second most amount of training overall. And then there's Alpine Guide certification, which requires the most. And if you get all three certifications, then um, your International Federation of Mountain Guides Association um, recognized if you take a couple tests. And that allows you to work in one of, I think it's 29 countries in the world currently that are IFMG affiliates. But that process um, is extremely demanding. Um, it takes a lot of time. I don't know right now, but I, th I think at that time when I was looking into it, the average number of years to complete the certification process for U.S. citizens is about nine. So nine years of training and certification wow. and, and uh, a lot of money. So uh, if you look at total expenses, including the cost of all courses and exams, um, the medical training that's required and the avalanche training, um, then you're looking at, you know, count it all up, maybe eighty to 90,000 U.S. dollars over the course of nine years. And so I started down that track um, in, I think, 2013 with my first courses and exams. And um, I've been on that track ever since, trying to you know, make, carve the time out of my life and, and afford it. And working in the outdoor industry in the United States is not that easy to afford. Um, and, but yeah, it's, it's been super rewarding. So I'm sticking with it. <laughs> so you started the training in 2013. And that was... I mean, that's several years. You had been already guiding this whole time. So that was, well, seems recent to me. Seems like that's definitely, that was a year before I left California. But you had been guiding and doing tricks way yeah, before that. So, this, so 2013 mm -hmm. is when you started the official. Yeah, the yeah, start exactly. Of the, those certifications. It's true. Yeah. And actually, now that I think about it, I think. I guess uh, you could say even 2011, I think, was my first. There's a program called the Single Pitch Instructor Program or Single Pitch Instructor um, Course and Exam. And so I took the course and exam in 2011. So, yeah, it was about, I guess, just right around 10 years ago. And then uh, 2013, I took my first what's called Guide Track Program, which is the Rock Guide Course. Um, and so, yeah, it's an interesting thing. In the United States, it's uh, a little different than a lot of countries. In the United States, the permit for protected land, so if I wanted to work as a mountain guide, say, in Mount Rainier National Park, um, those permits are held by companies and uh, rather than um, by, say, um, affiliate groups that might employ guides working for a lot of different companies. And so it's pretty common for companies themselves to provide the training rather than the training being provided by uh, a nonprofit. Um, for all guides. And so I had received quite a bit of training prior to taking my official first course. Um, but uh, that training was all through the company uh, or companies that I was working for. 
So, but it, so essentially, it didn't give me any certification that was recognized outside of that company. But the certifications I'm pursuing now are recognized more nationally and internationally. And do do you like being back here in the U.S. as opposed to living internationally, or do you mm. think you see yourself moving internationally for what you do? You know, if if if, if here it's based on a company, you can be your own sovereign individual with certifications outside the states mm-hmm. equally is that an option or you just want to be here because you're american <laughs> that's a good question <laughs> totally so yeah so it's interesting so to work as a mountain guide in most other countries you have to have all the certifications in order so i would need to complete my the the ifmj certification process so i'm probably i would say three to four years away from that still um, otherwise, I'm not able to work as a mountain guide in most other countries. Um, but having said that, I would love to work overseas. You know, I think it's really fun to explore and see new places and travel. And I would like to work in the United States, you know, for you know part time or half time, and then work overseas for part of that time. But uh, you know, I would, uh, my partner here in the United States, I don't want to make it sure it works out with our relationship and with everything else, and. Um, I think that for me is the most important thing that, you know, I have a happy overall life, which includes like working and traveling and adventuring and everything, but also includes like having a happy family at home. So it's yeah. a light, life is a holistic situation. You know, we get one track minded <clears throat> at points <laughs> for sure. Uh, but maybe it's our age, but I was going to ask you, so, uh, Diego, hmm. I'm going to ask Glenn, can you tell him and me some crazy story about <laughs> ice climbing? See if you can watch his mind explode. Did somebody <laughs> fall down a crevasse, snap a leg? and you? Do I know leg? this or do I have to make up? No, one? I'm asking him now. Like, oh. Like, do you have any story though? Because like, I don't know. What would you want to hear if you were 10? Ah, you're asking me to, to pull yeah, story yeah. out here. Okay, yeah, gotcha. Like, did, did oh, anybody, man. Did anybody's yeah. face freeze and you had to like <laughs> warn them by, by peeing on their face? Or like, you're going to die unless I cut your arm off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, arms are delicious. I'll just say that. I mean, gosh. Unless someone's peed on them, then it's not oh, quite yeah. as delicious. Yeah, yeah. It's a preservative. <laughs> Yeah, you know, I've got. I guess it, there have been a number of stories. I feel really fortunate in that I haven't been seriously injured. Um, I have had a number of close friends die um, in the mountains because it was dangerous. Yeah, um, but uh, you know, well, so kind of, here's a kind of a crazy thing to hear, Diego. So, um, mountains are pretty big. You've, you've, have you seen mountains before, Diego? Um. Maybe like a few times. I don't know. Not okay. like any huge ones. I've seen the small oh, Santa Monica mountains. It's probably the biggest ones you've seen. Okay, cool. Right on. Yeah, not too far from home there. Uh, from your former home, I should say. Uh, so, so there's a mountain here called Mount Rainier that I work on. Usually, just once a once a year. We just one run trip on it a year. And there's some ice cliffs on there. And if if, if you can imagine, like. 
kind of hard to imagine. Maybe you've seen some movies about Antarctica and things like that where you see glaciers. But the imagine like a wall of ice that's maybe 200 feet tall. So that's a 20-story building. So like a skyscraper, right? Really, really tall. Like to walk to the top of this, you would probably take like 30 minutes going up the stairs, maybe 40 minutes going up the stairs to reach the top of this cliff of ice. So can you imagine that in your mind? So I was walking, uh, getting ready to walk underneath this big cliff of ice, but there's a part of this that had been broken and it looked like it could fall down. And so I decided that instead of going underneath it while on a rope, you know, like how people who are climbing mountains usually do so that if you fall in a crevasse, the rope will catch you. I decided that we would take the rope off because if that broke and it started to fall, then we would have to run. And being attached to a rope would make that really difficult, right? It's like a <laughs> dog being on a leash trying to run. And uh, all the crevasses had been filled in from snow before. And so we started to cross. And uh, I had talked to the people that I was guiding up there before. And I told them that if there was a collapse, so like that big, huge skyscraper of ice started to fall down, that we were just going to run as fast as we could. And I was going to point in the direction that we were going to run. And if they couldn't outrun some pieces of it, then they were supposed to hide behind big chunks of ice that were already there in the snow. And sure enough, we started walking and we got about 60% of the way across this big stretch, which was maybe about the size of two football fields. So we like crossed one football field worth of snow and then we were crossing over and a little less than a third of the way across the next football field worth of snow. All of a sudden, I heard this really, really loud crack from high above us. And that big, huge block of ice was maybe about a quarter mile away and I could see it teetering and it was far enough away that the sound took a long time to reach us and it it was already falling by the time I heard the sound and so yeah so I just screamed run and we started to run and then I was looking up to my left every once in a while, but there was a lot of snow I had to climb over while I was running. So mostly I was looking straight ahead. And But while I was looking, I could see these huge blocks of ice hit the snow. And what happens when you have something that big crash down like that is it's so much force that it actually instantly melts the snow and it was shooting steam out from the side all around and at the same time it was almost like a crazy movie it created a wave in the snow itself and so there was kind of a wave of snow that was causing a massive avalanche of snow and ice that was starting to come down the face and so we ran all the way across these two two and a half football fields worth of snow and got to the other side and on the other side there was kind of like a hill of snow we had to climb up over and climbed up over the hill and I looked behind me and one of the people that I was guiding was right there with me and the other person had gotten really tired because we were climbing at about 13,000 feet at that point. So pretty high altitude, so not that much oxygen. And I looked back and he was still in the path of where the ice was coming down. And so as I watched, I kept yelling at him and screaming at him, just keep moving, keep crawling, anything. And then these blocks of ice, luckily, the, you know, you imagine like this big, huge apartment building coming down 
Um, it didn't stay as one big apartment complex. It sort of smashed and broke up into smaller pieces. But some of those pieces were the sizes of houses, and some of them were the size of like garden sheds. And um, so because he was so tired, he knew he couldn't run anymore, but he looked up the hill, and when he looked up the hill, he saw this big chunk of ice about the size of a house coming down. And so he managed to get just beyond where that ice or that house size chunk was coming, and he got behind a big, huge block of ice that was existing there from a previous like collapse of ice, and some pieces maybe the size of like people smashed into the backside of that ice chunk that he was hiding behind, and the house sized block rolled on one side of him. And if you imagine like something the size of a house and going maybe like uh, the speed of a really slow car, it like framed his body perfectly. So I could see this tiny little person backed by this giant dark blue block of ice as it rolled end over end. What looked slow, like slow, but it only looked slow because it was so big. And then in front of him for just a brief second, a really fast chunk of ice about the size of a garden shed shot by. And he disappeared from view for a second. And I didn't know whether to close my eyes. And like, I thought for sure he wasn't going to survive. And then when the garden shed size chunk passed by, I saw he was still there hiding behind the ice chunk. And then I started screaming at him again. And then he slowly climbed up in the big snowy hill where we were at. And then about 10 seconds later, an entire avalanche just shed down the entire face and dropped into crevasses below. And so that was, uh, <laughs> oh, yeah. My God. yeah, yeah. Uh, that was definitely one of the scariest moments, uh, being in the mountains. It could have easily could have killed us, killed all of us. <laughs> yeah. It was crazy. Uh, so you, you saved everyone's life that day. Uh, yeah, you know, if you were tied, you couldn't have escaped. And had you not preemptively noticed your surroundings, the environment, pay attention to everything and also have a contingency plan for the tired mm -hmm. guy. Like if you just said, Hey, we're going to run. And that was it. And that was the only sure, thing you yeah. told him he'd be gone. But yeah, you said, yeah, Hey, yeah. take cover. They took, oh man, like those are two sentences, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, critical information at the right time is, is literally life altering. And yeah. that's a testament to that, dude. That's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It was pretty nuts. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We got lucky for sure. <laughs> uh, especially even have uh, a little altitude on that hill for when the avalanche came down, what if it was, if it had been continuously mm. flat, would you have been caught up in it? Yeah. So, oh, sure. So, you know, that little sort of hill knoll that we climbed was from a previous ice collapse. And what happens is the ice, as it comes down, it piles snow up on the, you know, at the, at either side or it carves the snow off the mountain, you could say. And so, um, it created like a trough in the mountain from the previous collapse. So, but it's certainly possible that had that debris zone or that trough not been carved previously that, yeah, you know, the, the debris could have spread a little bit wider and yeah, it, it could have been a lot worse for us for sure. 
So yeah, we got lucky. Um, let's see, Diego, do you have any questions? No. Is your mind officially blown? <laughs> yeah, he's speechless. <laughs> so if you if you're okay on time, we quote, we keep chatting. I, I release Diego. He's at his uh, hour cap. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> All right, Diego, you can just mute your mic. Bye, Diego. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Thank you, Diego. I hope you have a great day. Yeah, he's a. Uh, this is awesome, man. That the most amazing part about this, and I, you know, I'm learning more about you right now than I've probably ever known, and we've known each other how long. <laughs> you know, oh yeah, I know. This right? is this is why I've I've grown to really love this medium. You know. Um, mm. I can't wait till you're here in person. I can <laughs> give you a hug. We could do a little jujitsu. Rut row. You're going to tear me up these days. <laughs> no. I, I, yeah. I, I think I know stuff. And then, you know. Oh, you do. You know. Um, I wanted to ask you. So I, in that juvenile, you, you did take juvenile, was it delinquents or in that community program when you took them climbing? Mm-hmm. Um, I was just curious what what you gained kind of long-lasting from that, I guess, from mm. that experience. Because I remember you mentioning, you know, how in the end is extremely rewarding, but also it became way too taxing psychologically and physically too. Um, mm. And how you, you know, if you're able to, what that was like, and then how you translate that towards now just to guide it paid expeditions versus you're really trying to navigate these troubled kids towards understanding it takes more than uh, arrogance and one-sided and internal views and uh, me against the world attitude and making them work together. I always, I always really hold held on to that, that you told me that was really powerful because most people don't have the patience to deal yeah. with difficult people with compassion yeah. And you, you obviously gained all that compassion when you, from all the you know martial arts you've done and carried that with you, and to help you hold steady. But I don't know, I I don't know if that what you, what you take away now from those experiences. Yeah, that's a good. That's a really interesting question. Um, yeah, so I worked for a couple different wilderness therapy programs. And uh, the type of people who attend wilderness th therapy, is, it's a pretty big spectrum. You know, some kids are there, um, and I did work with all youth, so they had to be um, under the age of 18. But some of the kids that were there were there for, you know, using marijuana um, a few times, and their parents became con concerned about their future. And then others were there because they were violent offenders and you know they may have actually in the case of one or two they may have actually committed homicide so you get a pretty diverse <laughs> group potentially and depending on what type of program you're working for and one of the programs that i worked for was uh state funded as well as funded by an ngo that worked with tribes primarily in um alaska so alaska native uh clinket haida um, Athabascan primarily uh, individuals and um, 
I would say I'll start with that program. So that program uh, was pretty long duration. So they were 40-day expeditions with a no out-of-field time. So all of our resupplies, fuel and toilet paper and food were done by jet boat or aircraft. And you're spending a long time with these kids in a pretty difficult setting uh, in terms of the environment. You know, we operated, including in Alaskan winter. Um, <laughs> so it could be pretty extreme, you know, in February in Southeast Alaska. Thankfully, not Central Alaska, but in Southeast Alaska. But um, that program taught me a lot about myself because not only did I have to manage my own comfort um, and my own food intake and my own warmth and everything else, but I also had to help kids and who may have been, it may have been their first time in this type of environment. And they were also dealing with a lot of, you know, difficult psychological issues um, and dealing with the fact that their parents had sent them away to be with these strangers in a strange setting and all of the emotional ramifications that go along with that, like feeling unwanted, feeling, you know, like thrown away. And I think in terms of my own learning, like I ended up working on Denali on many years later and in the Himalayas and other places. And I don't think I, that any of those places posed such a, a difficulty in terms of self-care as Southeast Alaska in the winter did when working with people who didn't want to be there and in some cases would become violent. <laughs> so it made guiding like very trivial, <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, you could have, you know, every once in a while, I'd say it's a, it's a very, very small percentage of people that I've worked with in the outdoors are, are actually really difficult, but it makes dealing with those very few difficult people like very easy so overall. The harshest environments in the world are easier than people. Oh yeah, sure. Easier than having <laughs> difficult people in the harsh environment, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Totally. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it, that makes a big, big difference. And, uh, but I, and I think a lot of people in terms of like harsh environments, like I'd say environments that are, that have high humidity and are cold, like Southeast Alaska, which are like raining nine tenths of the time and might be just above freezing. I think those are infinitely more difficult environments than say, um, like working on Denali where it's typically low humidity and cold. Um, it's just so much easier to deal with like negative 20 degrees Fahrenheit than it is 31 degrees Fahrenheit and sleeting every day. <laughs> but uh, that's just my perspective. Um, yeah, I, I, I can agree with that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but uh, you know the kids themselves like i think uh, i learned a lot from from the kids because you know a lot of them you develop real like very real relationships with and it can take a long time for some of those programs and depending on the situation the kid is coming from because understandably they view you as a hostile enforcer <laughs> you know authority figure to yeah take anger out on absolutely and authority certainly hasn't treated a lot of these kids with much respect from much of their lives whether it's a parent that's been abusing them or um, a teacher that's labeled them or uh you know certainly someone like me in my position telling them what to do in a situation they don't want to be in 
So it can, there's a lot of barriers to developing real human relationships with some of these kids, but, you know, thankfully people are pretty resilient and people want to connect and have real relationships. And after a number of weeks in the program, most of them open up to the idea that you're a person and you deserve to be treated like a human being. And, you know, you're going to go through kind of like waves of, you know, having what seems like a positive relationship and then what seems like an abusive relationship with these kids. But they definitely taught me like how resilient people are because knowing where these kids came from and what they've been exposed to um, and then thinking about my own life and how easy it's been comparably, you know, relatively relative to that and the things that I find difficult in my life or annoying in my life when I think about what these kids had gone through. I'm like, oh man, I am a pansy, <laughs> you know, like in the, in, for the most part, you know, yeah, they these kids were facing, uh, facing problems because of decisions they'd made, but putting myself in their shoes, I could only imagine making worse decisions, you know, or behaving much worse than these kids did. And, um, gave me a lot of respect, you know, for, people in general from all different backgrounds and what we can put up with and how we can still come out on the other side being pretty good people overall. Um, and I know that's like a loaded term, the word good and what that means to different people. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I think it, that was really helpful. And then the other thing is um, a lot of these programs, they have built in time for the kids to reflect and journal and write. And, I think you have to be a pretty egocentric person to think that these kids have something to reflect on and not think that you don't have something to reflect on. And I think you have to be, you know, you'd feel very contradictory or hypocritical if you were asking the kids to reflect on their lives and thinking, think of things that they could do to make improvements without doing the same yourself. Mm -hmm. And I don't think you can be very effective without doing that. And so having that built-in reflection time and time to think about my own life and my own values and how I was or wasn't acting according to those values to make the world the place that I wanted it to be had a, a big effect on my life at that time and continues to have an effect on me these days. Although, you know, kind of just like anything, like these are um, practices and um, practices require practice. And so I'm not as practiced now with reflecting on my life and thinking about the positive effect I want to have on the world or on the people around me as I was when I was involved in wilderness therapy. But that's certainly something that at least I've been exposed to and I can carry forward when I have those times when I want to be more intentional in my life. And uh, I, I think that it was at least as therapeutic as for me as it was for the kids that I was working with and um, has had a really big effect on my view of humanity in general and for you know lack of a better way of describing it like the very hippie way of looking at the world which is like we're fundamentally all the same in that we all given similar circumstances are prone to doing things that are really sad and unfortunate and and bad quote unquote for the world and at the same time given similar circumstances we all will want to be uh, someone who's empowered to do good in the world and, you know, make a positive difference in the lives of other people. 
and um, it it really broke down a lot of barriers, you know, because I was I was working with people who'd killed other people, you know, I was working with people who'd uh, abused people and who'd done you know like pretty bad things. And thankfully, they're kids, and for whatever reason, our society tends to have a lot more compassion for kids than it does adults. But I recognize like the adults in these kids' lives that maybe who had done unfortunate things to them were kids at one point. And we're, you know, whether it's a kid or an adult, I feel like in their shoes, you probably would have done something similar. And with honest reflection, I can't say that I wouldn't have done worse. And uh, it just has given me a lot more compassion for people. And it's made me have very different views of our criminal justice system as well. And um, yeah, a, a really a real desire for paradigm change in the way that um, we look at the world, I guess you'd say. Yeah, I think I think you're absolutely I think it's beautiful. Everything you just said, I think it's super extremely introspective. I think you are reflecting. I think I can tell by you continuing on this path and this journey and this dedication to your training in outdoorness because it's given you and them so much. I think you're just preparing for the next round of, of inspiration, letting people touch and see what you have. And I think it's just, I think it's just the beginning of, you know, this next step because once you have this, you complete this, difficult time of completing your training, which, you know, kind of feels like you're at a standstill for somebody who's been traversing the world for so long. Mm -hmm. I think you're making the best and taking advantage of what you can do now and just preparing when things open up and you, you start doing more guides and the introspective side is, you know, all of us, you know, there's, there's nothing more introspective and a way to look at what you've done right and wrong on the daily than having kids. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah, totally. It's yeah. it's hourly, you know? Mm-hmm. And if you're like me or most people that, you know, sit quietly and really take that time to, if you're not writing per se, but allowing your time to, to sit idle, that's when you kind of get a sense of who you are, what's in your head, what you're actually thinking about. And, and then is it, like you said, is it in line with your values? Are you, are, are you acting in spending your energy in what you think is what you want to actually do? And, you know, at the end of most days, you know, if I had a great day with the kids and I, I aspire each day to have good days and mm-hmm. you don't always, you know, <laughs> and you know, sometimes you beat yourself up in the end of the day. You're like, okay, we got to fix it tomorrow. Be a mm-hmm. better person the next day. It's just in your face, you know, it's a, it's a mirror. Like you said, you had, you know, this time with the kids and, and how they react is a reflection of how you are. Mm. So you took this compassion to them, which you're going to take to every grown up you lead and whoever's in your life. And, you know, I catch myself cause that's my, my biggest fault is like, okay, just, just take down the, just take down the emotional state a second, mm. then assess the situation. It's like, trying to be better at catching those mm-hmm. triggers and signs and like, ah, and it, you know, I, I can, I'm getting better at noticing it. I don't always catch it, but getting trained at, okay. Uh, you know, because I get that, uh, that quick feedback. 
right? Mm -hmm. We do sometimes do stuff and you're training, you're hiking, you're climbing, preparing. Okay, you get to the mountain, you're, you've been prepared. You get that immediate feedback of, oh, this is all going into action. Whereas sometimes you're acting, acting, you don't know the feedback loop until years later. Like, oh, I didn't realize this was the path I was going down, mm -hmm. you know? And mm -hmm. in doing this is, um, you know, I'm just trying to each day be who I would could look back on with a little bit of whatever happens. Like, hey, you know, you put a, you put in your most effort there. Good job. You paid attention. You know, whatever that means. It's just trying to be more intentional with my time. And mm -hmm. just, you know, just listen to how that's that's impacted you. You're 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 at this in between phase of the next level of of expeditions you know you've, you've accomplished this a massive amount of empathy compassion teaching which taught you and now you're taking it further and i you know i always looked at you as very introspective and you don't just jump whenever you really analytical about decisions you make i really admire that and your toughness of body and mind to be in those elements i think is incredible so i do work out every day now in hopes, well, one, that I can just play with the kids. That's my number one mission. <laughs> I literally, I want to run and play with the kids. That's why I work out every day. Because mm -hmm. as you know, our bodies decline, are declining. Mm -hmm. So I have to like stay on top of it. Mm -hmm. um, we did some cool, you know, that is massive zip lining contraption thing at a place we went. We did some underground caverns here in Texas. Mm -hmm. This huge, massive, you know, they discovered it in the 60s goes down like 20 or 30 stories this huge natural wow. caverns and they were talking about the people that initially found it three three hikers trek you know uh day packers mm. they just found a hole in the ground in somebody's land they're like oh let's see how deep this goes <laughs> and they began spelunking and it it's uh you know it's a it's a grand hall just open of these caverns underneath the, but they traveled down maybe two or 300 feet in a very small crack until it opened up. And I was just putting myself in their mind and I was, I was really thinking of you. I'm like, oh, I bet Glenn sees amazing things like this because he <laughs> has that bravery to initially go to a place that you don't know, go do something you don't fully understand and have that tenacity and that bravery to just push beyond like, you know, what's already there. So you'll go there. Like, I think you go somewhere ha having an idea of what to expect, but planning for unexpected events. And I think that's a, that's a lost skill and strength in a, uh, a lot of us. But so they climbed down this two, three hundred, I mean, a very small crack. And it's just, I just kept thinking, what would it be to be that guy? Or those three people <laughs> walk, crawling through this tiny crack and then just it opening up hundreds of feet big underground mm. like how that emote like that rush i like, couldn't get it i was like what if mm. you found this like it's like mm. finding a live dinosaur or something that ancient, <laughs> you know because it's you know millions of years that it took to be created you know just through natural earth changes and geological transformations but I don't know. Is that, is that part of what you find? You know, you think you're going to, 
you think you know what to expect and you get there and you just be as prepared as you can because the land changes so mm -hmm. much, especially on glaciers. Maybe dry mm -hmm. mountains are more or less the same, but I imagine the, the shifting environment of glaciers, it's, it's, there's no, you can't draw a map, map today that exists a few years from now. Is that the case? Yeah, that's totally true. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, I think one of the interesting things about mountain guiding is um, certainly a lot of the time you could be repeating similar objectives. So you've been there before, like you're saying, you see it in different seasons. And so you have a general idea of what to expect, but it can change. But one of the cool things about mountain guiding is sometimes you're actually guiding things or to destinations that you've never been before. And uh, it is a unique skill set that the idea behind some of the training is that there are sets of principles that you can apply in any terrain or there are sets of skills that you can apply to preparation um, for entering any type of terrain that will allow you to navigate this terrain um, more safely. And then there's also a progression that, you know, um, when I first started to go to the Himalayas, um, I had uh, previously, you know, been in a lot of different terrain that simulated various aspects of the Himalayas, right? Like I'd been to high altitude, I'd been on glaciers, I'd um, been in mountains that were composed of different rock types. And so, and I understood the various geological histories that lead to the formation of different peaks and where I was likely to find um, moulins, which are like big meltwater features on glaciers versus crevasses versus snow-covered parts of glaciers versus Appalachian Zone, which is a non-snow-covered part of glaciers, and, and what the different hazards are in those areas. And so, um, you know, using the, you know, the caving kind of analogy, I think um, this certainly isn't always the case, but a lot of times people who go into those areas, they have a wealth of experience to draw upon to let them know and make educated guesses about what they're going to find and how to manage it. Um, and that, you know, people like you and I, because I have caved before, but I'm certainly not an expert, but people like you and I may be taking a lot more risk um, going into an environment like that because we don't have that previous experience or prior level of training. And with that added risk, right, um, which is largely comes from ignorance a lot of the time, you know, whether, whether that results in like a feeling of excitement or a feeling of fear, I feel like is largely a product of your personality. And, uh, you know, I've been out with people who really have no idea what they're doing in the mountains and are just really excited about it. And really excited about doing things that are really, really dangerous and they have no idea, <laughs> you know, That'd and be I've me. been, <laughs> yeah, for sure. Me, me too. Absolutely. You know, off the off the bat before I knew a lot about what I was doing. And then, and I've also been out with people who are really afraid of things that actually have low levels of risk. And I think that's a fascinating thing that usually with experience and training and mentorship, the, your emotional response to an unknown environment starts to more align with the reality of the dangers there. And so, you know, someone with a lot of experience, caving might see that and not be afraid of it at all. And someone with very little experience might be really afraid, um, but certainly you could reverse that. And this is, this is where I think it gets dangerous, where someone with a lot of experience might be really afraid of something, 
where someone with little experience is unafraid. And I think that's where you end up having a lot of accidents happen. <laughs> right. But what's important is that the experience and training causes you to feel appropriately about the place that you're going relative to the potential hazards and dangers that are there. <laughs> yeah. So, does, so you're right by Rainier. Does it provide enough difficulty and, and level of training that you want? Hmm. Good question. So, so I, uh, I don't work on Rainier very much because the company that I work for, we don't have uh, what's called priority use on the mountain. But uh, I work a lot in North Cascades National Park um, and on Mount Baker. And uh, the cool thing is um, the North Cascades in particular, there's just so many different types of mountains there and so many different challenges from uh, long alpine rock ridges to steep rock faces to long complex glacier travel that yeah, I could easily spend my entire life in the range and never, ever get bored. So, um, yeah, that's one thing. I definitely would not say that I've ever been bored in my profession or where I've been out on a day of work and been like, man, you know, I wish I was in a cubicle right now. You know, <laughs> so almost never happened. <laughs> See, this is what I want for amazing people like yourself is in your house where you live, you should hang up pictures of cubicles, really nice framed inside offices. Be like, ah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, that's if, a good idea. If only I, I could be there. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Yeah, you don't find pictures of cubicles on people's walls. I always find mountains, whether they're into yeah, the mountains always, or not. Yeah. Like this fake background here, <laughs> mountains or beaches and stuff. Like, no yeah, totally. Like I remember when I <laughs> you first came to work and I was scanning some film for my buddy Marshall and we were sitting in the dark room and you kept having this very perplexed, confused face for a long time. And I thought mostly you're confused at what we were doing. And then I finally asked, I was like, I was like, I know it's a lot of gear. And so you're like, no, no, no. How are you in here all the time? <laughs> I was like, what do you mean? How are you in this room all the time? And, was, and it hit me. I was like, I don't know. I just, you just adapt to what you think you have to do. You know, you're just like, oh, well, this is, mm -hmm. This is what I do now. I did, this is you just get in some sort of like mission of this is this is who I am. This is what I do now, and I haven't escaped. I'm in that dark room, uh, and it's been fine. And it's it's grown and career wise, it's been awesome. But I'm in this dark room, always wondering like, hmm, I think of you. I think of you saying that often. You know, sometimes like, what am I doing in this little box? Glenn's probably on some <laughs> mountain right now chipping some ice or making some coffee and he probably only has like three three almonds and coffee for a 10 10 day trek very light <laughs> obviously made up but i do think of you know you out there me in here you know the difference of what uh can be gained and so what i do as opposed to being like grumpy about it is uh especially during this whole quarantine it's been awesome because being able to be with the kids more and also make a big part of, you know, us being outdoors for, you know, a couple hours at a time every day as part of this. This is what we do. Obviously, we're not climbing mountains or anything, but it was a difference between. And I'm thinking I'm, I'm literally feeling that I'm doing the, the minimal impact, minimal viable thing 
going on a bike ride or a hike every day, usually a bike ride or a walk. And I, but I was like, this is strange. Like at the beginning, I literally saw dozens of families outside when they first mm-hmm. felt their, you know, being trapped inside. It was dozens every day. And every mm-hmm. day we were out there just like, hey, it's time. Oh, everybody's getting a little little agitated, a little grumpy. We're, it's bike ride time. It's walk time. It's, we're going to go. We have a really cool hike. We have tons of hike and, uh, hiking paths in Austin. So there's one five minutes in the next neighborhood where you can, you can literally go so far you don't see homes. So you can walk for a few hours and not even see houses. And it's, it's fantastic. And it's only five minutes from here. And just getting in there for an hour and then back out it just the whole rest of the day for everyone is just like it's it puts everyone in a good mood just that being in the nature for such a limited amount of time mm. it, it really you know and if we could do that and then even if there's a bike ride and then as time went on it was almost no one like it was mm-hmm. just us it was only mm-hmm. us all the time I'm like where everybody went back inside like what's happening like you get this such a euphoric you know good feeling that lasts for hours and hours like it had to be done and i think it was this big wave of appreciation for nature and then i think it just it faded away immediately as they just settled and kind of just were okay with not doing anything anymore and i think it's it was lost and i'm i'm i still feel like i'm i gotta do more i should be doing more and taking them to these huge mountains, but really I can do what I can do now on a daily, you know, on school and work and kids. It's like, just go outside for a little while. And it just, it changes the mood for the house. It's, it's amazing. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I kind of feel, I feel like what, you know, people gain more if they went back outside, you know, I, I could see how you could be totally in love and addicted to doing, you know, living that life you, you lead. Because, mm-hmm. you know, every day you go out there, yeah, you just that amazing feeling times however many hours more that you get out there. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. I I don't feel like myself if I don't spend some time outside every day. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, I think I'm running out of time here. No, uh, we're booked for six hours. So, (laughs) (laughs) no, I, I'm sure I thank you so very, very much, Glenn. Um, I really genuinely appreciate it. And I, I I love your friendship and I'm, I'm glad we stay in touch for so long and good luck on everything. And let's just, you know, as we usually do stay in touch and give me a shout anytime. I'm always here. Awesome. I can't wait. I'm going to go steal your, Still your place there so I can enjoy some sunshine. The Northwest is a little bit dreary this time of year. <laughs> well, we'll be in touch because we're, we're uh, trying to do some house swap. So maybe we can do oh. that and uh, not have to pay for a place to stay. You could trade houses and you could live in my house and I'll live Whoa. in your house. Uh, Whoa. So let's, let's be in touch about that because we're open to that. Oh, that'd be awesome. <laughs> cool. Okay. That sounds great, Corey. Yeah, really good to see you again. If, even if saying is through a, a device. <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's all temporary. Yeah. All, right. all right. All right. I love you, man. Take care. I'll talk to you soon. Yeah, talk to you soon. Okay. Yeah, bye, Corey. Bye.